When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find them. Literally Sydney's best catering company has termed home delivery. Now, if you're in Sydney and in the greater Sydney area and, you know, we've been on the precipice of this second wave of this goddamn COVID-19 pandemic, you've probably had to do all the things and get-togethers in shifts in your house. You know, one morning shift is for the family, evenings for the friends, whatever the case may be. Don't stress yourself with the food, though. Go to Bella Catering. They'll deliver to most places around Greater Sydney. Order a, bo- a bunch of stuff for your latest get-together. Order a bunch of stuff so you don't have to cook. Have it home delivered. It's delish. Glenn, Maria, their entire team, all great people, all knuckling down to survive through this crazy thing. And then they'll be back and better than ever. We love them. Thank you so much for being a part of everything we've brought to you so far in all 101 published episodes of this show. We have a cracker. I've been looking forward to talking to this guy for many years. And he's finally here. Mr. Sam Fergoso. As a matter of fact, in all the President's Men, which he produced, uh, he played Bob Woodward, and, and, and we had very few major conflicts as producer director. He's a wonderful producer, as well as a wonderful director. But when it came down to the role, uh, he really related to the color of Bernstein, even if the ethnic quality was slightly different. Mm. Uh, And he was playing a man who was all controlled. Everything was held in. And there was this intense, contained energy that had to drive the picture. But it could not come out in obvious, colorful, butch, casting Sundance kid stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said to Bob, you know, if you pull this off, It'll be the difference between this picture being a success or failure, and you won't get any credit for it. And his, that contained energy drove that picture, and he didn't get the credit for it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, I'm going to do like a bit of a Mark Maron-ish digression in this part of the introduction, which is about a decade ago, well, feel, you know, close to a decade ago in Oz, I started thinking about how cool it would be for a whole emerging batch of new people who are writing about film to work together to learn the ropes of what it would like to be in a real publication together, helping each other, editing each other's work, guiding each other, and using that as a platform and a springboard to bounce into written jobs. Since then, Australian Film Critic Association award winners, best-selling novelists, writers for places like the ABC and Junkie and SBS and all over the place, published authors all around. And that was in Australia. And almost at exactly the same time, the guy that I'm talking to today had the same idea. And I've been watching his incredible work as a writer, like literally prodigious level quality work for many, many years. Um, And one of his collaborators on Movie Mezzanine is a friend of mine, 
And he said, did you know that my friend has now got a podcast? And I said, no, amongst all of his other freaking talent, this guy now has a podcast as well. So I must go and check it out. And let me tell you, as a guy who's now been doing a podcast for a couple of years, I just want to say that it's so rare that you find something new and I'm so appreciative of the people who listen to this show and enjoy it. But I genuinely think that this guy is one of the best interviewers I've ever heard on any show. Um, he has a, he has an incredible pacing and incredible research ethic. Um, and I just love listening to his show. Some of the guests, um, some of my favorite guests that he's had, Werner freaking Herzog, Werner Herzog himself, Chaz Ebert. I loved, I loved the Ted Danson episode. I love particularly a guy who I've never heard say more than five words in any interview. Bill Paxton is one of my favorite all time episodes and some alum of this very podcast um, uh, productions and one hit me to productions. Matt Zolazites is one of the first long form interviews I heard Matt do in a podcast. Mm. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome the host of the talk easy podcast, Sam Fragoso. Sam, thank you so much for being part of the show, my friend, Mr. Howard. What an introduction. <laughs> I, I mean, hard, hard to uh, return with that. You only made one mistake. <laughs> And I'm gonna, oh, only one. Only one. It was Bill Pullman. Oh, Bill Pullman. Sorry, rest, Bill Pullman. Rest in peace. Although I always, I always wanted to talk to Mr. Paxton. Paxton, who was so good. And the two, I have got them confused my entire life. I've, I, I've, I've just, I've done the thing that I didn't want to do, and I've uh, relearned my own mistake. But yeah, Bill Pullman, what a great interview, man! Th look again. I just want to say it's huge to have you on the show. You're a talented filmmaker in your own right. I saw your first short film, which is really moving. Um, and so I, I thought it would be incomplete for this show for us not, or, or at least any one of my productions for us not to intersect, even though I know that film criticism is not necessarily your main vocation at mm -hmm. this stage, but you still, you're still around it. You're still so damn good at it, Sam. I, I'm retired from writing film criticism. <laughs> and, and honestly, the uh, criticism world at large is better for my absence <laughs> they don't need me I, I realized around age 20 that there were people uh, so much better than me at it and i and i thought i'd let them do it um i assume you're is... i assume you're talking about tom clift tom clift yeah god I, and i haven't spoken to tom in so long and and all the australian people it was tom and andy buckle and yeah. so many of these people that, and, and, that i and, love andy what Andy worked with us on graffiti. Right. It was actually Andy and Tom, but it was Tom, at, funnily enough, in the front row of Sydney Film Festival. I think we were about to watch. It was like some, the first part of like a six hour epic mm -hmm. film that was playing in three parts. Mm -hmm. And he, we were shooting the shit as we do. And he said, man, Sam's got this new show and it's just excellent. And I was like, oh, well, of course, you instantly just go to your podcast app of choice and find it and subscribe <laughs> and go, I'll have it, give it a listen. And I was, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think you've gotten some of the most incredibly insightful and deep, great conversations that are out there, man. So congratulations on that. I thank you so much for saying that. And, and I'm glad we're here doing this after all these years and the, the parallel lives of it. <laughs> I really um, hadn't thought of that. And you're totally right. We were doing similar things at the same time but you know there was a ocean between us yeah a big ocean a big ocean a few friends but look I'm, I'm glad to have you here today um i'm here to get you to talk about to, to to come out of retirement 
to talk about one minute of one <laughs> film and then one film. Uh, uh, Perfect. Just, 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 just a dabble. You know, when people, you know, when they say, you know, uh, when they say you shouldn't drink if you're if you're an alcoholic and you're just going to have that sip, I'm just asking you to take a sip. I really hope that you don't lose a chip or you don't lose some kind of uh, something that uh, uh, gets you here. So yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll hop on the wagon for you, no problem. <laughs> is, is it on the wagon or off the wagon? I look. We're going to be on the wagon. We're going to be off the wagon on this show. Um, they're, I'm, but they're, I'm happy. they're they're drinking on the wagon, right? Is that is that what it is? I'm going to have to Google it, my friend. On or off the wagon? On the wagon. Is this an American idiom? One uh, of them means that on. you are back to drinking. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. I'm the I'm the one drinking. I'll drink with you here. Yeah, <laughs> Let's, I'm, I'm down. Uh, let's do it. Look, um, can you? Let's start with this film at the beginning of this project. And I think much like many of your projects um, and particularly with talk easy, this talk easy feels like a show that has been evolving and growing and is, is such a great time capsule because it feels like, especially since you've started it back in 2016, as I started it around the same time as one heat minute productions and one heat minute out the original show is like you go back and you listen and you can hear like the world being completely different. And in preparation for researching, mm-hmm. I was going back and listening to some of my, your, my favorite interviews of your show. And I was just like, God, the world felt quainter. Like people were just talking about, you know, oh yeah, Trump got elected, et cetera, this and that, oh, that might affect this. And it kind of, it's been very sort of cool. It was, it was just like, oh yeah, everyone was pretty relaxed about it. It was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but not too much is going to change. And then as I started catching back up and as I've listened to your show, as I've been doing mine, the same impact has happened, which is it is unfathomable how much the civil unrest, the, you know, the, the societal changes that have happened in the last year have completely changed your conversations. And I think some of the very best conversations you had early on in the series are people getting to those deeper those cuts deeper and that candor. And it's like, sometimes you got to penetrate those levels, but what's been really fun. And I think about both of our shows is like, people are just really ready. Now there's, there's no filter. It's like, I'm mm-hmm. going to get to exactly what I want to say. And it's going to be so fast. And it feels like you've just been like, they're catching it and guiding those interviews in the whole process. When you're living through a time, uh, that suggests there may be an end to that time. <laughs> Yes. That anyone would want to do any kind of tap dance around the truth makes yes. no sense. There is no time for yes. artifice. There's no time I'll do that. There's no time for artifice. There's no time for bullshit. And yes. so when you're listening back to those episodes with Herzog or, or Bill Pullman or Chaz Ebert, all those episodes I love, they are quaint. The, their concerns are trivial because before this moment, we used to be able to live our lives in a trivial fashion yes. where things did not matter and the stakes were much lower. Um, one could argue that was always true for white guys who look like us, and that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I'm sure people listening who aren't uh, white men are thinking, well, my concerns were always a bit larger, um, as were mine. Um, yes, but in those conversations that were film focused or project focused, um, it seemed very natural and easy to think about someone's larger life philosophies or 
bat around the past or war stories from set. All of those things seemed uh, appropriate and fun and interesting. And now I could give a shit about all of that. Um, yes. For now. For now. So I hope we return to, the, to those times of um, trivial conversations. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just going to say it's, it's like with this show, there was a goal... I had a goal at the beginning of the year. I was like, in my wildest dreams, I'd really love to finish it in a year just because it'd be a really nice time capsule, not only for film, like as a piece of film criticism that's happened over long form, but just in, in parallel with the dialogue of an election. Mm-hmm. Now, Australia was on fire in January as LA is now. Like, you know, it started with fire. It started with political upheaval in this country. And then the pandemic hits. There's like this brief window where oxygen is again available. I've got a lot of concerned international friends and guests such as yourself going like, are you guys okay? Like, are you recording? Like, are you on fire? Like, is there fire mm-hmm. near you right now? All I'm seeing on the news. But the more that this year has grown, I've been so keen to like get more episodes of this show out. And sometimes, you know, maybe too many. But it's But it's because every guest that I've been speaking to has always got some something new. And even if I've spoken to someone two months ago and now it almost feels like a lifetime. It's like what's happened in this lifetime between conversations. And so it's, that's, that's where I find myself in this project and the lure of it, I guess, is exactly what you're finding in your show, which is now it's just naked candor about people's fears, um, about people's concerns for society about, and that urgent, that pre- like pressing, like something's at the door. And I think that, you know, that salve that I've had looking back at this movie so many times, you know, it's gone from being an urgent prescient commentary to like a fantasy. Like, isn't it quaint where you can knock on people's doors mm-hmm. <laughs> and not get shot or, or, or where, where the politicians, you know, they had a playbook, but they certainly weren't as blatant as they are now. So it's, it's, it's been a really interesting sort of parallel dialogue. This film uh, is glorious. It's, gl- mm. it's glorious to watch. And, uh, I feel so much kinship with this movie. The amount of rejection in this film really oh. speaks to to my life. Um, <laughs> anyone who's ever tried to do anything knows that the first ninety nine times you uh, you get a no, and there's so much about this movie that is, of course, about right now. But on a personal level, I I just I'm struck by the candor of Woodward and Bernstein, and, and funny enough, now Woodward is back um, in the news in a way that is definitely less ceremonious than 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 this occasion. Um, but I I this film I'll I'll talk about whatever you want in this movie because it's it's really perfect, and I've seen it so many times, but I hadn't watched it this year, and it's eerie and and ominous to watch in 2020. Um, but also vaguely yeah, hopeful. A, yeah, I think I think that, and I love that you said you find a kinship in the rejection because that's what I find as well. It's like this: if you can, if you can embrace this sort of perennial feeling of failure. Yes, <laughs> I think I think that is a great driving force. It's like that, you know, and and I think as you said, it's something that like I reflect on. And I, I love your candor about it. It's like I look back at interviews on the other show, which w- was fantastic, and I think, man, I, I wish I had maybe different voices. I wish I, you know, you, you always look back at the work that you did and think of how, and, and you're your worst critic, yeah. um, despite what can happen. And and so I, that's what I love about this. These guys just being open to that, like we are our worst critics. We're going to actively be our worst critics. And in fact, being your worst critic is 
a, a really helpful tool to have with the, the, the right dose to help you grow. So look, we are for folks who are listening a hundred and two minutes into this incredible film from 1976 from Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford who produced it. We're at a moment where for a refreshing time in this movie, they're not having to jump through hoops to get the information that they want. It is actually so fun to see Robert Walden's Donald Segretti smiling and just start openly talking to Dustin Hoffman's Carl Bernstein. And I think at the beginning of the scene, and we're going to see it sort of unfolding, it's so weird that they just walk in the door and he's ready to talk. And if, you, if you've read the book, the, the Segretti revelations and finding out who he is took a long time for these guys to get. And it took a long time for this moment to happen. And I think finally it was like the straw had broken the camel's back that found him. Bernstein got in front of him. And at this moment in time, Segretti was ready to talk. But in this scene, it's just so wonderful. So 102nd minute, one hour, 41 minutes on the dial. If you guys are watching it, the great San Fragoso and I are going to watch this minute together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack it for you. Watergate, I mean, that's the whole bugging. That's horrendous. And what kind of stuff do you guys do? Nickel and dime stuff. Uh, stuff. Stuff with a little wit attached to it. I mean, when you sit out on a musky stationery that Senator Hubert Humphrey was going out with call girls. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if anything, it helped the man's image. <laughs> what, was the, what was the one on musky stationery that you sent out that said that Scoop Jackson was having a bastard child? So sometimes it got up to a quarter off the record. I think the, I think one of the, the most interesting ones was the Canuck letter. What about it? Come on. Will you claim that Muskie slurred the Canadian? Oh, I didn't write that. Do you know who did? Carl, when you guys print it in the papers, then I'll know. Smart guy, Don. You're no dummy. I'm a lawyer, Carl. I'm a lawyer. I'm a good lawyer. Look, when you guys print it in the paper, then I'll know about it. What a great scene. Perfect deflection. Absolutely perfect <laughs> deflection. He he acts that so beautifully. He's so obviously lying. Yes. Uh, you know, as someone who grew up with uh, a mother who was a lawyer, um, it's so nice to watch uh, the proper representation of, of someone <laughs> in law, uh, which is someone who will bend and break the truth on uh, any whim that they find just. And in this case, uh, this is someone who's so clearly guilty and so clearly um, knows too much and can't afford to say any of it, at least in this scene. Mm. Uh, there's so much I like about this uh, snippet that you that you took. Um, one right after this, he he talks about, um, you know, I got this job from from a man that I knew in college, and I I was just in the military, and you know, when I got out of the military, what am I supposed to do? What was I supposed to say? Someone said to me, "Hey, do you want to come work for the president?" Yes, and. We're living in a time, uh, and it's been said ad nauseum at this point, but we have all these really smart people on cable news. It's, it's like you have Rachel Maddow, 
Yeah, Chris Hayes. And I'm just naming liberal Democratic people that I do think <laughs> are bright, erudite, smart, thoughtful, critical thinkers. Yes. You have all these people dedicating so much time on the airwaves to a subject that's beneath them. <laughs> the, the, I mean, this, this, this central question for the last four years has been, how could he do this? How could he act in this way? How could he work against a system that we all thought we bought into? And this is the first time I had ever thought in the in, in, since those people have been on the air, Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, all of them at MSNBC. This is the first time I thought you guys are either idiots or the paycheck is so good based on the ratings of your show that you will not answer the questions honestly. you Because every telecast should say what Donald says here, I was doing my job. Yeah. When I'm doing my job, my morals, my principles, my ethics, all the things we think that make us us are thrown out the window. And I can't believe that every newscast in America doesn't just say, it's corrupt. The system was always corrupt. It just happens to not be corrupt on our side of the party line. We admit we should have done better reporting during the Obama years, which had plenty of corruption, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And some of them were critical of the Obama administration. Thankfully so. A president that I love and adore and, and, and I could tell you a thousand things that I like about him. But it really, this scene so beautifully speaks to when someone is in this this scene so beautifully speaks to when someone is a cog in a machine they forfeit the rights of personhood yes and when you forfeit the rights of personhood it's amazing what you as a person are willing and can and will do and and that is so troubling and and so horrifying to watch every day in the news here and uh, I was just reminded of all of that with with Donald's sort of smiling face and the sweater that I kind of want. <laughs> I want every outfit in this. And I'm so, I just want to quickly mention a previous guest on the show for his bravery in admitting this, the great um, Aussie comedian, Cam James, Cameron James, who's a host of a couple of really great film podcasts and comedy podcasts in Australia. Watched the minute I assigned him, Sam, and went straight to eBay and bought himself a corduroy jacket. Good on um, you. <laughs> which is a braver man than both of us. But no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a, he's, a, things- he's a richer man. I, I would totally do that <laughs> if I had the money. Yeah. Well, you know, he's getting that big podcast money. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to tack onto what you said is I've worked in, I've worked in corporate environments throughout my life, you know, bits and bobs, you know, just to survive paycheck, you know, I've got kids and uh, I got to, I got to make sure that they can eat, Um, and one of the things, you know, people want to change people's behavior in a corporate setting. And I think it definitely happens in a political setting, but you just nailed it, which is some people like, we want people to do this. We want people to do this. And one of the insights that I've been able to offer in that sort of space is I go, I go, is it how they're gold? And people go, what do you mean? And I go, if they don't do it, will it affect them having the job? Like, because literally that is it. If you say 
they have to do something and it affects their pay or it affects, you know, their performance and therefore they may lose their job or they're going to have to, you know, go down some kind of like training thing or re-up skilling, whatever the hell, there's a whole bunch of stupid nonsensical words that corporate environments apply to. If you're not performing, you may lose your job sort of thing. Um, and so I, I completely agree with you. It's like people are naturally incentivized in these cultures, whether it's political or corporate to be amoral. You have, you, you reset your moral structure to be that. And then the, the, the people that you serve in the community, the real people who you're interfacing with who actually have a genuine moral compass or standard, like, I think people believe the lie, even in a corporate setting. It's like, how can you not treat me like a person? And it's like, do you treat the customers you treat with like a person? And do you treat your political, you know, the people who hired you to be in that job or voted for you to be in that job? It's, I, I, I think that that is a great little fundamental insight from you because it's just, that's, I agree with you. It frustrates me to, when you're trying to engage with people on a fair level, it's stupid. It's like, no, it, there, this is not an equal playing field. It's about a calculated advantage, deception, deflection. Mm-hmm. That's what this entire exercise is about. But I don't know if it's amorality. You, you talked about someone being amoral. I don't know yeah. if, if that setting produces amorality. I think it produces self-preservation. Yes. And, and when you have to look out for the kids that you have, a wife yeah. that you have, a family that maybe doesn't come from significant economic means. You have to support them. That's where your decision-making begins and ends. It doesn't mean that you don't have a moral compass. It, it, it means there are priorities that come before the moral compass. Yes. I think where it gets complicated is when this comes to elected officials because elected officials are supposed to have as much power as the people give them. In a corporate setting, I don't expect anyone to do the right thing outside of their own capitalistic (laughs) needs and incentives. In a political setting, they don't exist without us. Yes. We picked them. So so (laughs) if we didn't pick them, they wouldn't be there. So since they are there, we're there. And since we are there, we are saying they should try to do the right thing. Now, of course, that doesn't happen because two-party system, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm going to say. I don't want to even say it. So um, I, I don't think it's amorality. Or rather, I don't think it's always amorality. It could sometimes be. I do think it's people acting um, out of self-preservation. And not couldn't be better, honestly, couldn't be better... Uh, impression of self-preservation than Robert Walden here as Segretti doing such a great job. And what I love is there's almost a moment where Hoffman's Bernstein becomes like, he knows that he's being deflected against and glib. And so all of that artifice around how I'm going to ask questions of you just goes, he goes, you're pretty smart. You're pretty smart there, Don. You know, like just starts talking to him like he's shooting the shit with a friend because he's like, you know what? If we're gonna if we're gonna play this game where all you're gonna do is deflect my questions, then I'm gonna just start probing and asking the things I want to know. Mm-hmm. Oh, you wrote that Canuck letter. Oh, you did this thing on the musky stationery. I know my I know my research. And then he's starting to back him into a corner, which bleeds into the later latter parts of the scene of like, <laughs> oh no, I didn't write that Canuck letter. I don't deserve the credit for that mm-hmm. piece of uh, 
uh, witticism, that witticism, that little bit of political fuckery there. Um, but I love, I, I love this scene and how it plays out because of that moment. And in the, in the context of this movie, it's actually nice for a change in this very unassuming setting to be getting such, even though it's deflected, getting some big confirmations about how this entire system has worked from, from election to now. Earlier in the film, they make a stop at a woman's apartment and, uh, she welcomes them with open arms. This is after two weeks of getting pure rejection. And within 30 seconds, they realize that the woman they're with doesn't have any affiliation with the team to reelect Nixon is really just a woman on the street who happened to read the same news clipping from the post that came out the day before. Um, This scene serves as its sort of counterpoint in terms yes. of the ease and comfort in which he lets Bernstein come in. What I thought was, uh, while watching it, what I thought was, thank God it was Bernstein and not Woodward in this situation. Yes. yes. I just think Woodward's rigidity and sort of seriousness uh, would not have exactly worked with with this man, who who's a little looser and and not so buttoned up and willing to to share more than he probably should bernstein uh is definitely the more casual and more fun uh journalist and as he said in the movie you know i've been in the business since i was 16 i think when someone's been in the business for that long the business is sport yes And, and i think that's the key difference between woodward and bernstein although they both take it seriously, I think Bernstein's more jaded. It's why throughout the movie, when they're confirming sources or not confirming sources, or saying, should we run the story, shouldn't we run the story, the whole time, Bernstein's pretty much, yeah, it's fine. Bernstein's like the New York (laughs) Post in this case. Like (laughs) Bernstein's like, no, he definitely did. We have that, we have that. And Woodward's like, well, we we may have that, and we could have that, but we don't know. And you know, you wonder why, uh, <laughs> you wonder why the system's broken. In some ways, uh, no politician should really be there for thirty years. Like Bernstein's a good journalist, but he was elevated by Woodward, and Woodward yes. was elevated by Bernstein and Bernstein's know-how. The two really are. Um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel in their own ways. Although yeah. Paul Simon was still good after Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> yes. Garfunkel wasn't that good after Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> Someone's going to come at me like the, the the one album he has of like spoken poetry. But but uh, honestly, Paul Simon's like superior after um, I Simon think and we Garfunkel. Can, I think we can agree. Okay. And look, what's interesting is I think... We, you don't want to keep talking about that? <laughs> no, no. I was going to say, what's interesting is, in some ways, you don't know which one is going to be the Simon. Because in some ways, I think, uh, I think Bernstein's real life cynicism and still sort of. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
forthright reporting is sometimes what you need right now. Whereas what's made Woodward newsworthy in recent weeks has been about him keeping his sources, keeping his agreements to the, perhaps the detriment of like the, what people perceive to be the public good, like all the public knowledge. So people want to really interrogate, well, why would you do 18 interviews with this guy for 18 hours? If you're getting, you know, potential story information that is valuable to the public, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's just his modus operandi. Like that's the guy. This is the guy that didn't speak about deep throat until he died as promised you know like when it didn't matter anymore it was like five administrations away and he's like no i'm not going to say who this guy is because that's what he asked me to do i just don't think that um i think they're both kind of they've both got a touch of the simons about them it's a fascinating question so when you go to therapy they say you know the 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 doctor patient confidentiality there there is some agreement yes that agreement is broken should that person be at a risk to themselves or or harm towards others at that yes. point the bond is broken the, the 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 agreement is thrown away and the cops are involved or, or, or whoever is involved to, to try to settle the matter journalism needs to have that same larger philosophical question and needs to answer it yes which is at what point do you keep the principles of journalism intact at what point does daily life mean more does does well-being mean more and i think woodward's principles of of keeping his sources close to the vest of protecting the people that are speaking to him, of doing the legwork, of doing the long work, really was perfect. It, it was it was kind of an irrefutable argument until to, until now until there was a global pandemic. Yeah, because I think all of us feel, yeah, I'm sorry. As much as we 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 love journalism, uh, a once in a century pandemic means more than your long form piece. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. it just does. It just does because we have almost 200,000 Americans. Um in fact I think we do have over 200,000 Americans now dead. And I don't think he was prepared to answer to that new rigor, to that new standard. Yeah. And I don't entirely blame him because he's in the 70s. In his 80s, maybe, he's worked the same way his whole life. How the hell was he going to know there was going to be a pandemic? The only mistakes (laughs) he made were between May and now. He's only fucked up for like four months. You know, that's that's kind of amazing. Like, think about it in practical terms. Like, in March, he heard some stuff. Okay, but that the CDC couldn't agree on stuff. In April... It got really bad in New York, but seemed to be okay elsewhere. Kind of. Okay, you don't know. It, by middle of May, he should have thought to himself, this is maybe too much information. This is maybe more than, uh, you know, Simon Schuster needs. <laughs> I don't know if it's Simon Schuster. I think it is Simon Schuster. Uh, so he fucked up, but I'm sure the book sales are going to be good. Sure, the ratings well, are good I, too. It, look, it's funny because um, 
he, like you said, he's, it's, he's following the principles that have worked through his entire career. And way back in episode 47, I spoke to this terrific Australian investigative journalist who's done some incredible work on domestic violence in Australia and, and some inquisitions into, you know, how it's handled by lawmakers and, um, incredible journalist by the name of Jess Hill. And she said that she was very lucky to receive the honor of getting uh, like a, a, a journalistic um, award, like a grant to go off to uh, this um, uh, sort of conference with a whole bunch of international journalists. And the keynote speaker was Bob Woodward. Mm. And she said she was sitting there and she was so excited because she loves this movie and she's an investigative journalist. So it's like your bread and butter, you know, this person that you're going to sit in front of. And at the time, she's an Australian. She was sitting with a couple of Middle Eastern journalists who were over there uh, as well in this conference setting. And Woodward was talking about basically the practices that that got them this story, knocking on people's doors late at night, you know, going and being forthright. I demand you tell me the truth, et cetera, and having that very stoic and rigid technique. And she said when she was listening to it, it was quaint we've said that word a few times in this interview now but she goes it was quaint because she was sitting next to these middle eastern journalists going so how would you walk up to some oligarch in your country's door and knock on in the middle of the night the way that woodward did in this quaint sort of beautiful washington dc and ask for information and expect to receive it and not have an ak-47 held in your face and so i think the paradigm has also shifted but now it's sort of caught up with his with his reporting so yeah it's and and you're so right about I think even Hoffman in this scene plays at Lucy Goosey. He's been really great at different parts of this movie and his performance mirroring the, what the person he's interviewing needs. And right now, you know, whether it's flirting on the top of the, the W hotel, I'm sorry, this is a correction from one of my great patrons, um, Greg Christie. Um, I've been saying Q hotel, but it's actually the W hotel in Washington mm-hmm. from when he's flirting with a woman on the roof from when he's in with the bookkeeper to now it's that like, I'm going to mirror whatever your posture is. If it's flirtatious, great. If it's rigid and, and calm, great. If it's now just loosey-goosey, all right, we're going to shoot the breeze, great. It's just, it's just perfect. Hoffman is really the only actor of that era that could do that. Um, yes. and, and you believe he is that journalist. His complete yes. flexibility. He is so malleable. That decade i mean it's been written about a bunch but there's really no better decade for an actor i think you have to go down the line i mean that's got to be one of the best decades for one single actor uh and he plays it perfectly he plays it perfectly i was i was drifting off into something you said about your friend going to that conference and seeing Woodward and, and kind of finding his approach as inspiring as he was a little bit out of date and, yes. and, and old fashioned. And it just reminds me some of these remaining stalwarts of, of, of the old vanguard of journalism are still alive. And, mm-hmm. and I just find every time they open their mouth, something bad happens. Uh, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> It, you know, like I think it was a year or two ago, Gay Talese, who's, who's one of the best long form mag- magazine American writers ever, ever. <laughs> yes. A better writer than every single person on Twitter giving him shit. 
like leagues better, leagues fucking better, and and by the way, much wealthier, which is a larger conversation. I could, I, I'm happy <laughs> to get into, but the truth is, he he said something that was like I think homophobic or strange about women or gender, and it and it was fucked up and backwards and and lame. But it just it dawns on me every time these older journalists open their mouth. They say things that do not fit within the current frame of mind. And, uh, you know, the only person I can think of that seems to be able to bend is Fran Lebowitz, um, who who came on Talk Easy earlier this year. And um, I think one of the ways she's been able to bend is that she actually doesn't write at all. She, She has had writer's block since the 90s. These people that we praise... These writers, you have to remember all of these people, and if you've met one, you've met almost all of them. They're better on the page. They're usually quiet people. They're usually introverted. They're usually keen observers. And what happens when you ask someone to do their job for 40 years as a keen observer of the human condition? Is it possible that that person who spends their life observing other people and human behavior doesn't really think about self-growth, doesn't really think about (laughs) personal evolution. When your life is other people's stories, maybe you don't think about your own that much. And so I'm not defending Woodward who's saying, knock on the door of an oligarch. I'm not defending Gay Talese who (laughs) made some strange gendered or homophobic comments. Uh, I'm just trying to understand how men and women for that matter, as brilliant as them could arrive at conclusions so clearly out of date with current times. So clearly misstepping cultural norms and what someone would consider enlightened thinking, knocking on the door of an (laughs) oligarch, probably not a good idea saying women can't be as, uh, thoughtful as journalists, probably wrong, probably yeah. wrong. So I don't know. These are just questions I'm throwing around. I'm no longer a journalist, so I don't have to answer them. <laughs> but but the, they are questions I think about and I I think are interesting. I th- I think that I think you're really hitting on the money there of the shifting paradigm. And I think one of the things that you and I have both glanced at and experienced is when you're just in the cycle of news, you know, there's this sort of these contemporary writers right now who get to come in and sort of talk about sort of cultural criticism. And I think of, you know, one of the top ones that leaps to mind is like Tennessee Coates. And so someone like that who can, who is very well read. I mean, you had, um, was it Roxanne Gay that you had on the show very recently? Mm-hmm. Am I, I mean, yeah. that, 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 that is a person that I say, you know, incredibly insightful and and just has a finger on the pulse of what is happening in the world and is tuned in and i think if you've just been in the zone in the and you you know like you said with a politician but like 30 years of a journalist who's just like doing these stories every single day and your beat is a specific beat or a a specific town's beat or something like that you, you you are kind of fed the news and then you're spitting it out and you're not asked to necessarily opine on it even though some people's work you know classic journalists it is not to opine it's just to like be there as a conduit to the news whereas now i think the 
the journalists, the new, the shifting paradigm is that we expect our journalists to have an opinion. We expect them to have a subjective perspective. We expect them to tell us about the world from the, the way that they're viewing it. And in fact, that's what we crave. It's like, I don't want to just, uh, you know, in, in Australia, there was a recent publication. I know this is so trivial, but this is, it's, it, it drove me absolutely insane, Sam. There's a publication in Australia, a youth publication called Junkie, who recently had one of their journalists publish a review of Taylor Swift's album. And there was like people reviewed that album and their fans were attacking these people. And so this publication took a stance that they said, well, from now on, when we publish a review for a big famous person who has like a cultish following, the review will go without a byline. The review will go with no person associated with that. So that we can protect our journalists. And I, and the first thing I thought was that is the stupidest fucking idea of all time. Why would I write for a publication as a culture critic, whether it's music or films or books or plays or whatever, mm -hmm. if you're not going to credit me with my words. And if I have a distinctive voice as someone I admire, like yourself does, or the distinctive voices of critics that I love in the world, you know, and I'll, I always say sort of my top four is like Walter Chaw, Manola Dargis, Bilga Ibiri, Matt Zolazites. You read these people's words, Angelica J. Bastian, you read their words and you're like, you know that it's them. But if you're an emerging critic, why would you write for this publication if they're going to just scrub your name off of it to protect cultish shitty behavior from fans who don't like that you have an opinion about a piece of culture? Like it, it just feels like, this is a dialogue that we don't get to answer, but this is a whole stack of conversations and questions that are going to need to be answered in the next iteration of journalism after this pandemic. So your frustration is with the publications that uh, you think it's almost cowardice to, to remove the names. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And, 100%. And, and what if those journalists are saying, I will write the piece, but I would prefer my name not to be on it? If it's the journalists themselves, I, I'm completely okay with them. I think it's cowardice more for the publication to set a standard that says for these Uber fandoms, I will not, we're not publishing that. Therefore, you know, you might write a hundred amazing reviews, but you know, you want your best journalists who are especially emerging voices. You want them to tackle the big uh -huh. texts. You want them to tackle and, and you want to see that that's them. So they're saying we're going to run the piece, but we're not going to put the name on it. Correct, so, to protect our journalists. So so I have some questions about it. Uh, one, <laughs> it seems to me that the journalists suggested that idea. That That's my assumption, but I don't know. And I don't... What's the publication name again? Oh, it's called Junkie. It's Actually, our friend Tom Clift works for them. Oh, Junkie. Oh, them. Yes, yeah. of course. Okay. Um, so I wonder if that was the idea of the journalists. I guess we'll have to ask Tom. Um the second thing, though, this is a larger conversation about journalism and criticism, is that they're trying to find a workaround for the fact that they are beholden to this industry. Because it, yes. it is, it is the, the only sure thing in criticism <laughs> is reportage on Marvel movies, franchise... Gossip, yep. casting, hearsay, trailers, Marvel movies, casting, <laughs> hearsay, trailers. So there's there's a problem here, which is 
film criticism. Smart people, like I said about Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes on MSNBC reporting on Trump. Matt Seitz, Bilja, um, all of these writers that you're talking about work for publications. RogerEbert.com, New York Magazine, Vulture Offshoot, AV Club, even <laughs> New York Times, even Manola, and they have plenty of underlings and interns and, and, and freelancers who are writing for bullshit wages that are covering these shitty movies. <laughs> What's happening is that that is how they generate revenue. Yeah. So you have an industry that hates and reviles a kind of movie, and yet their livelihood, their financial livelihood, depends on the existence of those movies because those are the only movies with a sure captive audience that will continue to click even out of hatred, even out of dismay. Yes. They will come. They are cultish. So that's why they cover those movies and why a place like Junkie may say, God, I don't want that backlash. Or at least if, if there is going to be backlash, I don't want the writer to suffer that. Is because oftentimes some of the best writers, you mentioned Angelica, um, who I've known for a long time, um, she actually likes writing about Marvel movies. She actually likes writing yes. about um, superhero films. She she likes fantasy and sci-fi, and, and in fact um, is really fantastic at writing about the acting in those films. But she is a black woman on the internet. Yeah. And a lot of the, the strongest writers, I think of Wesley Morris, go to Dana Stevens. Yeah. Most of the writers that I still read are, are usually not men and if and if they are, they're usually of color. And those comic book groups are made up predominantly of white men. And the way they treat these men and women is so bad, is it's so bad. abhorrent that I can understand a publication saying, you know, we have to run this for financial reasons. We know it will get the clicks and the hits. But my God, if, if I'm a woman on the Internet, it's a Thursday. Do I need it? <laughs> Do I really need it? Do you know how hard yeah. it is? To be a woman and a black woman in America right now, it's hard. It does not need to be harder. So <laughs> I say if, it, if it's the idea of the journalists, um, more power to them because I, I can't imagine that. And, I, and, it, and it hurts my heart to, to see that online for them. Yeah. Uh, look, the, the one example I use, I think this is a good. We're not getting answers, but we're getting good discourse is um, one of my really good friends, Maria Lewis, who's an author wrote a funny piece, Sam, about the film Joker. Okay. And it was, it was meant completely for humor. She wrote a piece that the, that the Joker himself was really bad at applying his makeup, bad at contouring, bad at dyeing his hair, bad at lipstick application. So she literally went through and spoke in the language of like YouTube makeup people and said he's bad. You know, he, he didn't leave his dye in long enough. It is made, it is a, a piece that was written just purely for whimsy. And she happened to be staying with uh, my family at the time. 
and looking at her Twitter, like people actually legitimately being angry rather than taking the piece for just a pure piece of hilarity and whimsy. I couldn't believe it. Like I, I mean, I, you couldn't pay for the engagement that she was getting on her Twitter, but it was all troll nonsense. And you're like, what is wrong with all of you? This is clearly a joke. She's teasing a fictional character about his contouring skills. Can you all fucking relax? But that's, that's the world that we live in. But so, yeah, look, I think a good, probably a good stance is to say if the writer wants to be anonymous, they can be. But I think that's, you know, that's, that gets us, that digs us into a hole that I think both you and I have come up against in both of our lives, which is why don't people click on really thoughtful, insightful criticism of whether it's film or culture. And you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we have to find different ways to engage with art uh-huh. than just simply a click. Um, there's so much to go on there and, and some of which I don't even want to talk about, but I, I, I just, don't. I just Googled Angelica Jade Bastian um, and the first tweet of today, 1227, on September 22nd, she wrote, and I'm not kidding, this is the first thing that pulled up, this was the first thing that was pulled up on Google. The hate mail I'm getting for my antebellum reviews is getting kind of weird. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't have written this as if I was the writers of all the president's men, okay? That's that's what it's like. So uh, these people um, that are attacking women like her uh, for writing a, a negative piece about fake people in capes and masks, there's so many problems, you know? Yes. Y- you really have to start with um, therapy being available, to people and and i and i'm and i'm kind of joking but i'm also not joking like a lot of these people um really just need a therapist they really just need a hug they they really just need some someone in their life to say hey you're okay you really you really don't need to idolize a superhero you are 35 you're okay (laughs) i and it's not to say uh, I still like some of the Marvel movies. Um, at, at some point, I liked Iron Man. I think um, <laughs> I know people like them, and 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 I'm not I'm not saying they're bad people or dumb people, but and it, it's just you can you like know. whatever you want. Like this is the thing: is that you have to get to the point where you're like, you can like whatever you want. I can like what I want. If there are things that we both like together, great. Let's gather around those things and enjoy them. But we don't have to like all the same things. But the, it doesn't the, but, have to be but, a monoculture. No, no, but see, the difference is, and this argument's made all the time, in, in good faith, and I'm not saying you're not making it in good faith, but the problem is you have to understand why these people are acting in, in, in this way. So there's a yes. couple reasons why. One, because they know their fandom dictates the terms and conditions of future movies. Yeah. You know, whether it was like the Jar Jar Banks needs to be taken out of a Blu-ray or something like George Lucas actually responded to these people. These are people <laughs> who've never made anything in their fucking life. And they are dictating the terms and conditions of art because Marvel is so, so afraid of losing them, of alienating yeah. their base that they're willing to bend 
on them. And, 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 and the second part is that um, these people who are, are Marvel fanatics or superhero fanatics or whatever, whatever, Star Wars fanatics that attack women like Angelica um, know that there are a lot of people like you and I who kind of disapprove of them. And when you say we can like whatever we like, yes, we can like whatever we like. But these Marvel fans are never saying, you motherfuckers, you like another Bellatar film, you little shit, how, how dare you, another Claire Denis movie, you immoral, more amoral, son of a bitch, you don't know any, you know, so they don't make moral judgments, they do not make character judgments on us because they haven't seen um, a Claire Denis Claire movie, Denis and, and, and honestly... Bellatar, I think I've only seen like the one with the horse. So it's like uh, whatever. But but the point is they do not Hey, hey. It was a really good joke. It was really thank good. You, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I'm in, I'm in the interest of transparency. So I'll, I'll tell you the the backstory of the joke. And um those people don't don't make judgments on uh us in that way. And if they do, we don't hear them. And uh, trust me, these people in their lives probably have someone whether it be a sister a girlfriend an ex-girlfriend a mom an aunt a grandmother someone and i'm naming women here because it's usually women but i'll name a dad or an uncle or a brother that are saying to them john we gotta go to the gym man like you gotta care about something else like you can't you gotta get out of the basement and like stop we gotta stop we can't go to the midnight movie again i'll go with you on a saturday night at seven but we can't be in line for the next marvel movie at midnight i've got to work tomorrow john i've got to work tomorrow someone's disapproving of them someone's disapproving. and so when they see it online by people they don't know they can finally say fuck you because they can't tell their uncle or their brother or their mother or their grandmother, fuck you, without <laughs> repercussion. They can say to you, Blake Howard, they can say to me, Sam, they won't pronounce my name right because no one gets Mexican right, fuck you. And they're right, fuck me. Who am I to judge them? I just don't want them to be hatred towards men and women of color or anyone who's writing okay. critical pieces. And that's, that's, the, that's the bare minimum to ask. And, and it's just, you can completely disagree and go, I hate this review. But when you take it, I hate this review, I completely disagree with it, whatever, fine. My big thing is just the attacks. And also the attacks are, that are baseless when something is written out of whimsy, out of funny. It's like, it would be like telling someone that an onion review was wrong. Yeah, You got it wrong. It's like, it's the onion. It's mm-hmm. satire. It is a satire of a review, um, and and so I think that that's the other yeah. the other challenge is that that <laughs> nuance gets completely missed. You know, of like <laughs> I I, I want to know the guy who's tweeting all the onion reviews saying they're wrong. Like I want to know that guy. Uh, you know, um, Miranda July is coming on the show this week. Oh, I love her. I've been I've been able to interview her at a Sydney Film Festival many moons ago. She's in a delight. Yeah, she's incredible and um I've been editing editing the episode and sometimes while I'm editing I'll just google them and see what what I find and and one piece I found um was written by the Onion and the article was called Miranda July called before Congress to explain exactly what her whole thing is. <laughs> and I, 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 I died laughing, but as we're bringing the onion up, I, I do wonder, like, 
it would be really funny and strange if Miranda July was upset about that article. Oh my god. She was like, I never went to Congress. I know exactly <laughs> what my thing is. <laughs> but you know what would be funny? And I think Miranda may be up for it, is if she like did like a a fake press conference where she addressed a post fake Congress appearance. I, I think she might be up for it. Like that's, I know she, that's the shit that the onion would, you take it to the next, like that's where you transcend. That would be incredible. The, it, it also, the piece came out in 2012. <laughs> so she's doing like, I'm coming out of quarantine. I got to address these issues. I never went before Congress. We all know none of them watch me and you and everyone we know. They definitely didn't watch the future. This is fucked up. Uh, um, I would love that. I, and, and, and honestly, I, I will I will reach out to her after this and say, could you could you do it? Please, please respond. It would be hilarious um, for all of us. Man, I could talk to you about a million things for a million years, um, but I might I might let this go and just say heartily recommend your incredible show Talk Easy, um, which has been a great source of inspiration and insight. Um, thank you for this dialogue because I don't think I've been happier with less answers in the show. Um, I think us just talking about it is exactly what I'm going for in this. Um, and thank you for coming out of retirement to get back on or off the wagon, whatever the hell it is. But it's a it's a treat to see you. It's a treat to connect. And, uh, and just thank you so much for being a part of the show. Blake Howard, thank you very much. That was a treat. Mr. Sanfragoso, really lovely guy. Lovely guy to talk to and someone I've admired for some time. And it's so great to finally connect. Guys, thank you so much for listening. You will be rewarded endlessly to follow Sam and his incredible podcast, Talk Easy. If you can just go to the links in the description, you'll find them. Otherwise, just type in Talk Easy into any of your podcast apps. Endlessly rewarding, candid conversations with actors, artists, writers, you know, political figures. Um, just something really special. If you want to continue following us at ATPM Pod on Twitter at one Blake Minute for myself on both Twitter and Instagram, oneheatminute.com is where you can find information about all the productions that we're doing. And uh, look, I'm so pleased we are again on the downhill slope of this show. So stoked to have Sam on. We have so many amazing guests to go. And look, thank you so much for your support and for listening. Share, rate, review. That is how you can help us the most right up front. If you have a little bit of extra coin, you can donate in the links in the description or to Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. But as always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.